Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nebula, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. I'm so pleased to be hosting our second season as we continue to talk to a diverse group of thinkers, advocates, researchers, and doers, all working to ensure our AI-enabled future puts people and our environment first. Today, it is an immense honor to be joined by Baroness Biban Kidron. Biban is an award-winning filmmaker. She's a crossbench peer in the UK House of Lords and the founder and chair of the Five Rights Foundation. She's leading the fight to protect children's rights and well-being in the digital realm. Welcome, Biban. Thank you for having me. Now, will you share the story of your journey from film to advocacy? Yeah. Um, it was a bit of an accident, I have to admit. Um, I'm someone who, for more than 30 years, was a movie director. I have to say, in a time when there weren't many women doing that role. Um, but in between making sort of narrative films and Hollywood movies and, and all of the expected stuff, I always used to make films that sort of had a social interest, social purpose. And so in 20. 12, around the time that a smartphone became the price point that a child uh, might be given one, I sort of noticed a shift in the young people around me. And I became interested in that. And I made a film, a documentary film, it was called In Real Life. And in the course of making the film, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours uh, with teenagers in their bedrooms doing whatever it was that they were doing online. So I have to say it involved watching pornography, playing games, uh, going to meetups, uh, falling in love, you name it. I watched it. Um, <laughs> but in the course of that experience, I also interviewed a lot of experts. And it was on that journey when people kept on saying that the utopian vision of the internet was that it, all users would be equal, that I realized a problem. And the problem, as I saw it, was if you treat all users equally, then de facto you treat a child as if they're an adult. And that seemed to me regressive. It also seemed to me to explain a lot of the problems that the young people I had spent all this time with were, were having. It seemed the reason. It seemed to underpin. And at that moment, I kind of had my light bulb thing, which said, Actually, we're not all equal. Some of us are children. And as it turns out, one in three of us online are children. That's an amazing statistic, actually. I don't know that I've ever necessarily thought about what the actual population or percentage of the population online would, would be children. So you've, as you've mentioned, been speaking then for at least a decade now about the cultural implications of this sort of increased technical aspect. Now, in the broadest sense, how have you observed digital changing everyone's sort of sense of self as individuals and as part of a, a bigger human collective? So it's a really great question. And I think that just sort of preemptively, I'd just like to put out there that it's important that we recognize that technology does not sit outside of the changes to society more broadly, yeah? So, yeah. you know, technology is a tool for an expression of globalization. It's a tool for an expression of 21st century capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. So in that regard, many of the issues 
associated with it and not technological, but to do with the business model that has grown out of those, particularly, I would say, out of those two things. And and I think that, that then if you move towards to the tech sector and you go, actually, what's unusual about them is not that they're innovative and creative and bring these things, but what's unusual and particular about them is that they have successfully argued for an exception to be treated as companies. So if you think about pharma and oil and gas and defense and food and, you know, and so on, yeah, all of those people, all of those sectors trade within society's rules and tech argues it should not. So the reason that I'm saying all of that in order to answer what was sort of a slightly different question <laughs> is, is to provide context for my real feeling, which is that rather than predominantly connecting us, which is the promise of this technology, it yes, has it in is. practice divided us. Not because it must. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, look at us. We, we had some trouble signing on, but here we are talking across, <laughs> across uh, space and time. Yeah. Um, but actually, because those people who have most reach and most depth are driven by commercial concerns. And that means that uh, for them, any price we pay as a society or as an individual is worth it for their bottom line. Yeah. And at an extreme, that can mean public disorder like Capitol Hill or murder like Christchurch or, you know, death as in the suicide of young people or the spread of fake news, et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess what I'm really kind of adding up to saying is it's, it's a pretty cynical business, which first atomizes and then links according to the needs of what are essentially advertising platforms mm -hmm. rather than linking us according to our human needs. So that's the shift. And, and I really, you know, think it's important to put it in the broad context, because actually by putting it in the broad societal context, you also start to speak to what the solutions are. You know, you mentioned you were sitting with kids and with teenagers. That had to be eye-opening on, on so many <laughs> levels. It also shows that you have the ability to really engage and, and gain trust with folks. You mentioned, you know, you started to see some of these problems. So what were some of the, or are some of the discrete problems and lessons you've observed that we're teaching children due to how they engage with and how we engage them through technology? Yeah. Um, so I think that the first thing, and it's sort of very unsurprising, is, is the kind of culture that you have to be in touch at any cost. And, and uh, that is a culture that is not accidental. It is designed into the system. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, designers call it engagement, networking, um, you know, extension of time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are, there are KPIs on all of these things. Lots of nice sounding things we can measure. Yeah, exactly. Nice things you can measure. But for a child, um, and I do remember a particular young child in my, it just popped into my mind actually, who said, Miss, can you just tell me how long can I leave it before I respond to a text? Yeah. You know, for kids, it is this sort of imperative to be in touch that I am going to die if someone takes away my phone. Uh, parents who take them into the woods to make <laughs> put the gaming console down. You know, that's a really big piece. Um, and then you kind of get into other things, which I'm sure we can return to, but to, you know, you know, to be thin. They learn to hurt themselves, insecure, self-involved, 
uh, that sex sex sells, spreads, share, you know, pays um, competition and so on and so on. But, you know, I could give you a very long list, but I also want to do the other thing because this is not, and, it, you know, I'm going to be like a broken record here. This is not about technology. Yeah, it's right. about uses and abuses. Mm-hmm. And this is what the result is of companies that have data extraction on their mind because it's great you can be a budding musician or filmmaker and get your stuff out. Yeah. It's great that you can speak to your granny across the world. You know, it's great you can find out health information that perhaps the parents or carers in your life don't want you to know or facts about climate change or indeed anything else. Um, So the problem is about the dominant pressures. And actually, you know, obviously we at Five Rights do an awful lot of research and we read a lot of other people's research but frankly you don't have to be an expert or an academic to know how kids are actually spending their time so all these beautiful things that they could be doing are actually not what they are doing Mm -hmm. and kids tell us parents tell us teachers tell us and so i'm afraid does the share price of facebook and google tell us what they're actually doing so so i think that the pressures are are very extreme uh, we've seen quite a record of it this week in the press with our Wall Street Journal revelations. Uh, we've done a lot of work here at Five Rights that shows the kind of pressures. And, and we engage very, very closely with kids and they tell us. Yeah. And it'd be interesting to hear through their their voice as well. What do you hear from them directly? What do they say? They feel that they are under immense pressure to look good, to be on, and to be popular. So unsurprisingly, the three sort of mantras of this particular business model, which is network, interact, (laughs) you know, spend time, are the very three things that are top of the kids' list. So uh, unfortunately, the designers are doing a fabulous job, and it is uh, resulting in the real life of kids. I think that the other thing is actually around sex, sexuality, and uh, some of the pressures around that. And that manifests in some very, very ugly ways about sort of how behaviors and assumptions, particularly, you know, I would say from what the message of sort of industrial level porn says boys how they're supposed to behave and what they're supposed to like and then uh, the experience of girls with those pressures but actually not exclusively that just to be clear and we've seen here in the UK um, a sort of a phenomenal rise of children both self-creating child sexual abuse material of their own um, and also children being abused by it. And a recent report that, that sort of hit the headlines here, um, you know, some girls were being asked as often as 11 times a night to post naked pictures by people they knew of their own age. And so this sort of like economy, the sexual economy has got younger and younger and younger. And and the thing I would say to people who are listening is rather than seeing this as a sort of a, Anomaly, I just, you know, or, or something, you know, that is just part of life. Just imagine if young boys came to the front door, you know, of your apartment and knocked on the door 11 times in one night and said, hey, 
You know, is so-and-so in? Will she just come to the door naked? You know, someone get their nose punched. You know, it's, it's created an alternative universe which kids find necessarily uh, difficult to navigate. Oh, I can only really imagine back in the day, we're uh, not so young as we used to be, but you could disconnect from it. You walked away and, and peer pressure was there. It's always been there. But I think there was still a differentiation between my sense of self and my sense of self-worth that wasn't only related to how I was being judged and seen and connected within that that broad community. I mean, it's always sort of a piece there. I, you know, I think that's, it's almost shocking though. And the other thing you said there was important is that we tend to think of certain behaviors and interactions in the digital ether as somehow being different than what we would agree to in the real world. Is that is that right? Yeah. yeah and I, I want to pick up on your point. You know, there was another thing about the division of self. Yeah. Which is, you know, even if you were under pressure socially, you went home. If you were yeah. under pressure at home, you went to school. If you went to school, maybe you had some friends. You know, mm-hmm. in in a in a connected life of a child now, all of those things happen through the device itself. They're all in the same place. So you can't even do your homework without being bombarded by the question of your sexuality, perhaps. You know, it's it's a very muddled space. So part of your sense of self was having a little bit of recovery time to yeah. actually go, oh no, 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 I'm not that person those people are telling me. I am this self, uh, whereas the, you know, a lot, a lot of children talk to us, you know, about an online self and an offline self, but, but what they actually end up describing is their perfect being and their depressed being rather than a sort of a private and public. And it's, it's really quite disturbing at a very individual level. Yeah, it is fundamentally disturbing. And it causes me to th- think about why have we as a adult collective been so laissez-faire about these issues? You- you've obviously talked about the commercialization and, and sort of the business model of the internet, but I'm kind of sitting here right now going, wow, I'm not helping, you know, how was I not not necessarily aware, but why am I not as sort of active? Like, what is the, what's been keeping us from... Well, first of all, let me say, join the fight, Kimberly. You are welcome in our team. I'm um, coming. <laughs> come on down. Um, you know, and I, and I really appreciate this question because, uh, to be honest, uh, I've spent quite a lot of time uh, thinking about it. I have to say, not only amongst my political life, my professional life, my personal life. You know, I I was crazy that people couldn't see what I could see. Mm-hmm. and And I have come to the conclusion that it is about a few very key things. I think the first thing is it says something to adults' own entrapment. You know, they're sort of involved in their own sort of false god about convenience. Mm-hmm. I will point out it is the convenience of the tech company rather than yours that you that they've outsourced lots of things <laughs> for us to do rather than them. But we, that's for another day. Uh, cheapness, which is another thing, because actually they've outsourced the cost as well onto mm-hmm. either individuals or society more broadly, and we can come back to that. And a sort of a human love of the new. So I think there's one piece which is around people wanting and loving and feeling that they must love the tech. Uh, 
I think the second thing is that they have literally armies of behavioral scientists, you know, and, and you know, I am an addict to the news apps. I mean, you know, it's like I go from one news app to the other news app and Wall Street Journal may say something different from New York Times and then I'm on the, must see the Telegraph and the Times and the Guardian and, I mean, mm-hmm. it's insane. Nobody needs that much news and it's all the same news, Yeah. So we are addicts to the system, and therefore it's very difficult to sort of separate ourselves and our needs and our agency from that of people who are are growing up into it and who don't have the offline experience and don't have other interruptions in their lives that might take them away from it. And then the, the last thing I would say is that we are really very bad in the modern world about numbers and about science and about facts you know and it's sort of like a horrible white noise that we're a little bit frightened of and 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 you know i i as we said in the beginning you know i was a movie director for 30 years i can tell you that people would sit for hours and listen about you know the most inane details of movie making (laughs) you know whether it was how we do the makeup or what the call times or who's first on the call sheet or you know all the nonsense they will listen to you know, I'm not talking about the interesting bits who we'll all listen to, um, but, you know, and, and they'll listen to the egregious behavior of movie stars as if it was, you know, as if it was a new chapter in the Bible. But but when it comes to this, they kind of go, oh, that's someone else's business. And I, as someone who's brought in data protection law, all I can say is sit at a, you know, meet someone at a party, sit at a table, and they say, what do you do? And I go, data protection law, and they literally scream for the aisle. So I think that there's something more profound about our sort of cultural sort of move away from understanding how things work. Uh, Because actually, when people do take the time, and some of the stories that we've learned to tell here in Five Rights, whether it's Twisted Toys or whether it's creating um, images. Uh, we, we, we made a newspaper about data and we made a kid's book about, about the code. And, and when people begin to understand it, you know, they are outraged, outraged, angry, and, and fired up, and they think it is quite wrong. Um, and when I explain, for just a really tiny example, when I explain that an algorithm could determine that an adult who's a stranger should be introduced to a child, yeah, as a random thing, they go, shock, horror, is that not against the law? And I go, no, it's a feature on 75% of social media sites that your children are using. And they go, something must be done. So I think it's a lot about storytelling and it's a lot about these other underlying cultural things and and it's it's been astonishing to me that I happily report that sometime here, you know, in 2021, people have got a grip and they have begun to understand. And, and I am very, very happy about that. That's excellent. And I want to talk about some of the things that you're really doing and, and moving forward with Five Rights that I think are progressing that narrative, uh, because to some extent it is str- it strikes me a little bit like a traffic accident where you don't want to look, but you can't help it. And then it's so horrifying. You still kind of want to close your eyes. And then you've got the abstraction into the digital and you think, well, how how, how bad could that be? But as you said, I'm actually just not telling myself the story of like, well, is that, would that be okay in real life? Like, is mm. that, you know, and so there's, there's so many pieces and parts there. So you want to shift that digital paradigm for children, full stop. 
Tell us about Five Rights and the vision and mission of the organization. And then we're going to talk about some of the legislation and that Twisted Toys campaign that you talked about. Okay. So so Five Rights was sort of my response to no one being interested in this agenda was, okay, I'm going to do it. And I I always like to say, uh, my poor husband, he sat, he sat me down. He said, you know, you're one, you're one of the most successful directors in the world. Are you sure? One middle-aged woman against, <laughs> against Silicon Valley. And, and I always have that in my head because I think that, I think we all have a duty to act when we see. Yeah. And, and it just sometimes happens that you see. And that was my duty to act. It wasn't a choice. So Five Rights was sort of born out of that moment, born out of that experience and born out of the, that, that, that particular time where I saw it as being a systems problem, not mm-hmm. a problem of, of bad actors and users. Those problems do exist, but it's a systems problem. And so our mission at Five Rights is to build the digital world children deserve. And I think that that's really important because we do think they should be digitally, you know, involved. And we do think this is a, a, a new world order in which children have the right to participate. And we are also very interested and do some work in the global south to make sure that children do have affordable access. So it's not the naysayers here. It's the what quality is that experience? And we have three sort of gazes. The first is data protection uh, and privacy. And, you know, the reason for that is follow the money. Um, If you make your money through data, you can protect people through data because the extraction of data is the thing that that actually all the design features hang on. The second one is child-centered design, which is around Mm -hmm. assessing and mitigating, answering one question and one question only, which is if the person at the end of this service or product or feature was a child, how would it impact on them and how would you design it differently for their benefit? And actually, if you just keep on asking that question, um, whether you are an e-commerce company who recommends a knife with a school bag because kids have been buying those together, yeah, bad idea, um, true fact, or whether you're a social media company, you know, who's uh, got a map thing which shows the real live location, of a young child to a public, you know, and start thinking, is that a good idea? You start coming up with different ideas. And then thirdly is really uh, children's rights. And our argument, and this is a bit difficult for America, which is the only non-signatory to the, oh, and North Korea, uh, to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. But for the rest of the world, this is the foundational document of how you behave in regard to children. And one of its very important, uh, in fact, its fundamental sort of overarching provision is that you must act in the best interest of the child. And uh, I think that although, uh, and I had a wonderful conversation with someone at one of the big platforms, you know, who said, you know, we thought that was so abstract until we started doing some use cases. And actually, every single time, we really knew what was in the best interest of the child. Um, right. So, so actually, a rights framework has been very, very useful in legislation here in here in uh, Europe, and, and that five rights. And we're very proud of this. We, we, on behalf of the Committee of the Rights of the Child, we uh, were drafted in huge consultation and with workshops with children in twenty-eight countries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
what is called a general comment. And general comment 25 sets out how children's existing rights apply to the digital world. And that was for the first time made official that children's rights actually exist in on, off, virtual, real, etc. And and that was adopted formally um, by the UN family earlier this year. So so those are the three gazes, but they're all about ending the era of exceptionality and putting it in the societal treaty, you know, uh, rules-based world. And it's all about looking at it at a systems level, not going, oh, that poor child, that happened to that poor child, and that was that particular platform, because actually almost all of these things are systemic. Yeah, that's a really fundamental, I think, an important shift in the lens and in the point of view that you take. And and it, I think, then means that we approach that conversation very differently. Um, you know, this is not folks with sort of pitchforks and, and things storming the gates, but having a very productive conversation, even in what seems the face of, of insurmountable odds. Now, I want to come back to this idea of, of, of youth as stakeholders, you know, as opposed to subjects. Um, but before that, um, can we talk a little bit about some of the really important legislation? Uh, you mentioned the code, but also, uh, I think, probably one of the most important policies and legislation I see out today has been the children's code. What has been the evolution? Can you walk us through the evolution and the impact of that? Yeah. So the code came about, uh, we in the UK, because in a sort of anticipating Brexit, we brought the GDPR into national law. And in doing so, uh, it had to pass through Parliament. And, And I had a look at it. And I thought, you know, it is shocking to me. And and we talked about this right at the head of the show, which is one in three users, yeah, one in five in, in the UK are under under 18. Yeah. So that's one shocking fact that they didn't get much more attention. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. the other shocking fact is that because of a piece of legislation in the US that was brought in in the 2000s, um, which is called COPPA, that children traditionally online are considered uh, 13 and under. And I think you have to just not go very far to ask any parent whether they think their 13-year-old is ready for the big wide world. Um, And if so, you know, if you're really going to insist on it, I'd love them to send them out, you know, (laughs) into the world and let them just uh, come back in 10 years and see how that went. Um, But so, so there seemed to be these very crucial things. There seemed to me to be an inattention to children. But there was this one thing, and it was a recital 38, and it said children require special attention. It was slightly different from that, but that was what it meant, a special consideration. And I thought, okay, what would that look like? If we had a data code that was the special consideration for children, And I sat down and I tried to imagine what I thought good would look like. And first of all, I thought, oh, well, we'll define a child as someone under 18 because that's the definition under the UNCRC. And we will deliver on the best interest. Oh, because the convention also says that. And then actually, instead of having uh, uh, legislation that is about sites that are directed at children, we'll do it where they're going to be because children under 18 are largely speaking most of their time not on things designed for children 
we're not talking about improving, you know, um, the Disney app. We're <laughs> talking about the entire spectrum of where children are. And on that basis, I put forward an amendment um, uh, to the Data Protection Act that was called the Age Appropriate Design Code, and we often call it the Children's Code. Um, and it really set out a rights-based approach to data protection. And in negotiation with the government and finally with the extraordinary commitment of the regulator, once it was through all its hurdles and all the battles and all the transitions <laughs> and so on, um, that translated into 15 um, standards. And I have to say, 14 of those 15 standards were the standards that the minister agreed to in Parliament when we passed the amendment, and the regulator added one. Um, but, but I think what is interesting is on the journey, there was a lot of naysayers, and on the journey, there was a lot of pushback, and you know everything from this will be the end of the internet to we are leaving the UK to, you know, I mean, you know, the grandiose, ridiculous yes. <laughs> claims uh, to actually people having very, very con legitimate concerns about dumbing down children's experience or they might be locked out or so on and so on. But actually, as you've seen in the course of this summer, as people started to, com to actually comply with the code, what people began to understand is that it is in fact a safety by design system. What it says is, hey, look at your service. Is it likely to be accessed by children? And it lays out what might what that might look like. It's very simple, you know, if other if if your market research says, if you know your customer says, <laughs> if academics say, if children say, then then it is. Um, and if it is, do this uh, risk assessment and look at these four areas of risk um, and then actually look at, at, at the provisions and see whether your risk and your provisions are bumping into each other. And they're very, you know, they're very bold, but they're very straightforward. They say, you know, uh, you may not share a child's data with a third party unless it's in their best interest. Yeah. Uh, you must not profile them to deliver them detrimental material yeah do not show their real-time location put gps off unless they turn it on and put a warning don't let their parents survey them unless they know their parents are surveying them i mean they're very straightforward basic things um and what we've seen the result of right at the other end is you know, Google is now safe search automatically for kids under 18. You would ask yourself why it wasn't before, but it is now. Um, they've turned off autoplay. That's been a long beef of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, direct messaging off on uh, for, for under 16s on TikTok and Instagram. And uh, they've stopped behavioral advertising on Instagram and Google towards kids. Etc. 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 I can't remember them all, but these huge, huge platform changes, each one of which has been deemed impossible in and of itself, have been coming like tumbleweed through the summer, and uh, a few more private ones that I happen to know about that they didn't want to bring attention to, and some that are still coming. I can assure you. So. I think, you know, and and also a whole load of well-being things, time out, time off, 
you know, and and a lot of work on people's terms and conditions. It's a long way to go. It's one step. But I think from my personal point of view, I go, what is the biggest change of the code? It's that you can see it can be done because this is an entirely engineered system. Yeah. yeah? It is human made. It's optimized for advertising. Well, let's optimize it for well-being. You could optimize it for zebras if you wanted to. The point is we have to decide as a society what kind of digital world we want. And the point is, right back to your first question, that that actually, you know, they are determining a different kind of human interaction. And we really must ask ourselves whether it's worth paying the price. And I say, in relation to children, no. It's almost breathtakingly simple in some ways and so incredibly complicated. And I love just that reemphasis as well is that we tend to somehow assume that the systems we have built have now become systems we cannot unbuild or rebuild, even though they, they didn't actually exist not that long ago. So there's something else that can also exist not that far in, in the future. And that perspective and I, and I don't know if that's somewhat because we just see them as so overwhelming and pervasive at this point, but I'm sure that's been true of any technology, you know, along along the way. Now, so many things we, we could talk about there. I have to tell you, I the Twisted Toys campaign is genius uh, and terrifying. Um, and clearly your skills as a storyteller and understanding how to do that come into play. Tell us about the intent of that campaign. And if folks haven't seen this, you've got to look at it because it's evil genius in all the right ways. <laughs> so twisted-toys.com. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for saying it. it's, it's genius. Um, the, there was, uh, I have to say, we had a lot of help and we, um, during COVID, there was a few really creative people who worked for absolutely nothing to help us with that. So I want to do a shout out and just say everyone who worked in, on, on Twisted Toys is a genius. Um, <laughs> but basically, this was the essay question. I said, if I spend 20 minutes with anybody in the world, I can explain what Five Rights does and why it's so important. But it is really hard to do it in writing, and it is really hard to be, get people to understand it our way um, because, in a way, you know, they they are both encouraged by an enormous lobbying effort and perhaps a little bit because of what you just said, which is people always imagine the world is how it is until it is some different mm -hmm. and perhaps it's the role of art and artists and creators to show us the future and so I said I want 60 seconds I want you I'm going to tell you the 20 minute version you give it back to me in, in 60 seconds <laughs> um, and what came out of that process and it took 10 months but it, what came out of the process was that we had a catalog of toys and the toys, each toy would represent a different problem of the digital world. And in doing so, it would sort of show how preposterous it was. And we started off with the catalog. And once we had the catalog, we thought, okay, we're going to make adverts. 
for the catalog. <laughs> and we made four videos of four of the toys. And I won't do the whole catalog, but if I say that we have Stalky Talky, which <laughs> is the toy uh, that helps adult strangers find children. I mean, that's dark, but it's it's both funny and uh, and and to the point. We have Share Bear, who is the teddy bear who monitors absolutely everything. And when you feel really, really sad, he gives you an advert um, for something that might, you know, make you feel better. And if you feel mm-hmm. fat, he offers you food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and then we have the wakey, wakey light, which is the one that wakes you up to tell you irrelevant things that you don't need to know. <laughs> and in a way, the most simple and the best of all, is my first terms and conditions, and it's a book this big that talks <laughs> that talks to the conditions. And if you hang on one moment, <laughs> and, and for those of you, while, while she runs off, when she did this big, it was a book that was at least six inches thick. So, look so sad today. Here's an <laughs> about losing weight, and that is Cher Bear. Smile, you're on camera. Yeah. Anyway, it's a ludicrous thing. You can see it on the website. Um, And I think that what was so great and we were so happy with what we did there was that people from all over the world shared the the adverts and it brought us a lot of new friends and a lot of people said, you know, it was so wonderful to see something so dark treated with humor. And obviously as a children's charity, we're always worried about sort of, you know, taking these really, really serious uh, issues. And, um, and, and sometimes we, you know, we deal with families, we, we deal with really uh, very troubled children sometimes and, and so on. But, but actually we got such a lot of support from the, that community of saying you've actually explained our pain in a way we want to see it. So, so we were very proud of that and thank you for saying it was genius. Oh, well done again. And I also such a testimony to the power of storytelling and, and giving voice to things in ways that make them palatable, um, or at least make it possible to to sidle up to them and, and take a look sort of straight on. And humor, storytelling all play a part in doing that. It doesn't diminish the criticality of the issue, I think, but it welcomes people into the conversation. One of the other things you do so well, we talk a lot in when we're talking about AI in general and, and, and making it equitable or fair, or sustainable about the need for diverse ecosystems and stakeholder groups and bringing people into that conversation. And it strikes me that the population you work with, with this youth and children, it would be very easy for us to, and and for you as policymakers, to view them and engage with them as if they were your subjects, as if you're representing them versus engaging them as stakeholders, right, and, and giving them their voice. Is, is that an important distinction about engaging youth versus representing youth or, you know, the youth as a subject and a stakeholder? And how do you work with that population to make sure that you are giving them their voice in an appropriate way? Yeah. Well, uh, I think it is a huge distinction. And I think, bizarrely, it's particularly huge distinction when you're talking about population that does not traditionally have access to the same tools of expression as other organizations. I'm not going to say it's only kids because that's mm-hmm. not true, but it, sure. but it certainly is. 
you know, they don't get to vote for a start, you know. <laughs> um, right. You know, I mean, at every level, they don't have, have uh, uh, the same representation as adults. So, yes, I think maybe if I could just tell two very quick stories. Number one is if you look at the 15 standards of the codes, I can give you a name of a child against a lot of them, right? They're not in the code. They're not in the legislation. They're not in the publicity. But in my mind, there is Molly. There is Peter. There's mm-hmm. Benita. I can I can tell you. And that was partly because, um, you know, we do these workshops, at, at very different workshops in very different places in different parts of the world. And as children sort of give us their experience, we, we begin to see these problems. And then as you solve the problem, they sort of attach. And, and in particular, you know, I believe that the, the you mustn't nudge a child to lower their privacy setting is, I believe, the first time that negative nudges or dark patterns, if you want to call them that, are in law. But that's actually a young boy called Peter who was playing a game with no save button and got into a really terrible traumatic family situation because he wouldn't go down to dinner again and again and again because he was always an hour in or two hours in or two hours and a half in and he couldn't save the game. And so it actually says in law, you must be able to have a save button. You know, these this is what I'm talking about when I say child-centered design. Well, yeah. that child blamed himself for the divorce of his parents because of no save button. It's a long story. I won't tell you here, but but my point is these are real things, yeah? So first of all, that's one thing. I think the other thing is that actually only last week I saw um, a young man. I'm not going to tell him his name here, but he was one of the kids in my original film. Uh, and he was 15 when I met him. And when he was 16, we went to meet his online lover that he'd never met in real life and he came back uh last week and telling me that they were engaged and he still works doing some of the it at five rights he's now a young man of 24 that's how long (laughs) i've been doing this and um and he said to me you know this is the proudest you know, I am more proud about my involvement with Five Rights and, and being part of the reason that, that the world has changed. And I see it all because I work in IT and I just, I'm just so proud to have played a part. And all I can say is the UK littered with people like that. And actually some other countries are littered with people like that. And, and it is the thing that we are most proud of because, you know, you, you started this conversation talking about about groups and about this sort of idea of the collective. And, you know, I I do this day in, day out. All the team here at Five Rights are, you know, are committed in that way. Uh, and, and we all see ourselves as conduits for a better digital world for young people. We are not individuals, we are conduits. And that is humbling and it's it's really quite good fun. Yeah, I'm I'm staggered and rarely speechless, but I've come close a few times today. <laughs> so um, we could go on for a long time, and I may have to entice you back. But I really just 
both personally and, and on behalf of the human collective that we're all a part of, just thank you for leading this charge and speaking up and engaging the rest of us so that we are speaking up and showing up for those who are just too easily overlooked as we craft what I was going to say is our digital future, but really it's just their future, full stop. So thank you again. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, next up, it's going to be difficult to top that, but uh, I don't think we're going to top it, but we'll try to match it as our discussion continues with Giselle Mota. Giselle is currently a principal consultant on the future of work at ADP. We're going to be discussing automation, agency, and learning in the age of AI. This will be another dynamic and forward-thinking conversation, so subscribe now to Pondering AI so you don't miss it. 